I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we seek to discern the things of life and the things of death in the Bible so that we can properly choose life. Last week, we began examining this topic of allegiance and the implications that then go along with living a life in allegiance to the King of creation, the God of the Bible. As we examined this topic, we explored the definitions of the words surrounding allegiance, faith, and loyalty, two words that are so closely associated with the idea of allegiance that the word allegiance is used in the definitions for both of these other words. And as we examine all three of these words, we discover that the primary thrust of the idea of allegiance is a matter of priority, giving priority to the entity of your allegiance, placing focus on the thing that holds your allegiance, and then operating in such a way that your time, energy, and money are all aligned properly so that your life demonstrates that allegiance to any that might care to examine it. And know that one day it will be examined. Every bit and aspect of your life will be examined. Allegiance means giving priority. And when God is your priority, allegiance means that the kingdom of God is also your priority. It means putting first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It means picking up your cross and following Yeshua. It means leaving father and mother and home and spouse when called to for the sake of the kingdom of God. It means living as if this kingdom were the most important driving force in your life. Because it should be. Everything else will pass away, but this kingdom will not pass away. Even your own life in this world will end. It's inescapable. So if you truly believe that the kingdom of God is eternal, if you truly believe that Yeshua is king, If you truly believe these things as we profess to do, then where's the proof? If all I had was your bank account and your schedule for how you spent every moment and every dollar in the last month or year, would I be able to tell that the kingdom of God is a priority in your life? Or is it just a weekly social club, a place to be with some nice people that you agree with? Now, this may sound extreme, and that is true. The kingdom of God is so countercultural that it is extreme to those who are part of this world. And if we're not willing to go to the extremes with our faith, then what are we doing here? Are we just passing time? Are we living under the radar? Are we doing the bare minimum it takes to get into heaven? Or should we be extreme? What did Yeshua call his followers to? Did he call us to safety? or comfort? Or did he call us to live for him to the extreme? Well, there are many places in scripture that speak of living an extreme life for God, but there is one that comes out and declares it clearer than any other. 
in my opinion. In Revelation chapter 2 through 3, we read the seven letters to the churches of Asia. And there's a lot to be found in these letters that we could dig into and we could dissect, but that is a process for another day. In one of these letters, the final warning to one of the churches in Asia is a letter that's written to the church of Laodicea, or Laodicea. We read of this in Revelation 3, 14 through 16. And to the messenger of the assembly of Laodicea write, The Amen, the trustworthy and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now often we look at this saying and we wonder at it. Hot, on fire for God, out there moving and doing and working, passion and miracles. Yes, on fire for God. We've heard sermon after sermon after sermon of being on fire for God. But then we read cold. And in our modern Western minds, we think frigid, reserved, sitting around without any passion, not moving, not working. God wants us to be cold? Being cold is okay with him? Well, I can be cold. Cold is easy. It requires nothing of me, right? There's a problem with this interpretation. When we interpret this passage in this way, we are applying modern metaphors to these ancient words. Hot and cold in this instance do not mean either passionate and on fire or frigid and reserved. You see, Laodicea was situated close to two other cities in Asia Minor, Heriopolis and Colossae. Now, these cities, both to the east of Laodicea, they each contained a set of springs. In Heriopolis, there was a hot spring. The water was warm and was viewed as a source of healing. But this water did have a sulfuric smell to it, and so it was not useful for much other besides bathing and soothing away pains and just giving a general sense of well-being. In Heriopolis, they leveraged this warm water for industry, and they became rich, and they became a powerful city. The other city that was nearby was Colossae, and it was famous for its cold, mineral-rich water. It was praised by many in the ancient world as having the best tasting, and most refreshing water in the entire world. And nearby, between these two cities, was Laodicea. Now, Laodicea, or Laodicea, did not have any springs. But they did have a river which was leveraged for textiles and other industries. But something else that Laodicea had was aqueducts. In fact, Laodicea was the central hub for the Roman aqueducts throughout the Roman Empire. But the water that reached Laodicea through these aqueducts, well, by the time it got there, after traveling five to ten miles, it was lukewarm and rather disgusting after it picked up all the stuff in the aqueducts along the way. Especially with these other cities nearby with such useful water sources. And so this passage isn't about the extreme of action or the lack of action. It's not, be either hot on fire for God or cold sitting at home doing nothing. This passage has nothing to do with your enthusiasm or your passion. Rather, what's being pointed out is that these other cities had water that was useful. It was prized, it was sought after for more than just money. 
It refreshed in one case. It healed and soothed the way in the other case. It brought much-needed comfort to the people of these cities. And so this charge in Revelation is that the church is to be useful to your city and to those around you. Create a culture and environment that will draw people to you. The lukewarm water in Laodicea? <sighs> Useless. You might as well simply wash the street with it. And so this charge is to take the message of the gospel to heart, to declare your allegiance to God, and then to do something with it, to bring refreshing and to bring healing to those around you. But if you sit around doing nothing, like the lukewarm water, then you'll be cut off and destroyed. The gospel we see here is not a personal message. It's not just for you alone. The gospel is a message that is to be shared with others. It is to be used to bring refreshing and healing into the world. And this is what we see as we continue on, Revelation 3.17. Because you say, rich I am, and I am made rich, and I need nothing at all. And you do not know that you are wretched, and pitiable, and poor, and blind, and naked. You see, Laodicea was a rich and a very famous city in Asia. They were the hub for the water flow, and as such, they became the center for banking. They also had that river that flowed nearby that was leveraged towards the production of textiles, making clothing. Laodicea also featured a cutting-edge medical school that developed ear and eye ointments. And yet, even though they had money because of the banking and textile industries, and they had clothing from the textiles and the wool that was a cash cow for the city, and they had eye ointment that was highly sought after to treat conditions that produce blindness. Despite this, Yeshua calls them poor and naked and blind. They had everything that the world seeks after as the best of the best, and yet spiritually they were lacking and they were useless to the world around them. Who does this sound like? Well, it sounds like many of us in the West. We are so rich that we don't truly have any needs. We're so comfortable in our riches that we don't believe we even need God to help us. Or that we don't need to act like God to others. We don't need to preach of another kingdom. We have a kingdom that supplies our needs. We have more clothing than we could possibly ever use. We have more money than 90% of the world. We have cutting-edge medicines that treat all of our ailments. We see ourselves as rich and honorable, and we see clearly with our science and our medicine. But our riches have led us to become useless to the world around us. Now, don't get me wrong. We are good at taking care of physical needs, but we have lost touch with caring for spiritual needs. We have become lukewarm as a nation and as a culture. Our ease of life, that lukewarmness, has infiltrated our homes and our places of work and our churches. And it's because of this that Yeshua gives this advice in Revelation 3.18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich, and white garments so that you become dressed so that the shame of your nakedness might not be shown and anoint your eyes with ointment so that you see. Come to Yeshua, buy from him, seek his gold, his garments, his eye ointment. 
riches in the spiritual. Only then will you have what is truly needed to excel in this life and the next. The riches of this world, they fade away. They come, they go, they're temporary. The kingdom of God and the spiritual, those are eternal. So where is your priority? Going on in Revelation 3.19, it says, As many as I love, I reprove and discipline. So be ardent, be zealous, and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I shall come in with him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I shall give to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. And in this closing to the church of Laodicea, we find four benefits of kingdom allegiance. Four things that will be provided to the person who comes to Yeshua and seeks his his riches and his clothing and his medicine. Now, last teaching, it may have seemed as if all that there was to look forward to was sacrifice in your life. Give up this thing and that thing in order to focus on the kingdom of God. Be prepared to live and die for the kingdom of God. Sacrifice your time and money for the kingdom of God. But there is much more to the kingdom of God than sacrifice. There is a benefit plan. There are things that you will gain as a citizen of the kingdom of God in exchange for the sacrifice. And these last few verses of Revelation 3 speak on four of these benefits. Two of them explicitly, one of them implicitly, and the final simply implied. So let's dig into these because these four benefits, once properly understood, internalized, and then practiced, can change your life. And so as we go through, we're going to start with the final benefit that's listed in this chapter, and we're going to work our way back to the beginning. And I want to do it this way because it's the first one that's a bit hard to spot in the text, but I think that it can be the most foundationally life-changing benefit of every single one of them that's listed here. So the first benefit, or is it the fourth? Regardless, it is the benefit of authority. Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I shall give to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this is something that I practice in my local ministry. It's a process called demonic deliverance. It's something that my wife and I, we've been called to, and I hope at some point to put together some sort of curriculum to teach how to engage in spiritual warfare in this way. Regardless, the fact is, is that we have authority over the spiritual realm as members of the kingdom of God. Luke 10, 19 says, See, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and none at all shall hurt you. Now, for many, demonic deliverance, it's something that is done to them. Someone speaks in the authority of Yeshua, and others listen and reap the benefit as the enemy is driven back from their lives. But one of the purposes for what we do in the way that we do it is not so much as to do for others, but rather to teach these others how to then do these things in their own life when they return to the mundane day-to-day ins and outs of their life. Because each and every person who has entered the kingdom of God has been granted this same authority. You can speak with the power and the authority of Yeshua. 
The things that he did, they're not too far off from us because it isn't our power that accomplishes these things. It's his power and his authority that has been loaned and granted to us. This is not something that is congregated in the hands of a few. The fact is that every single one of you who's under the blood of Yeshua has the authority to command the enemy in the name of Yeshua. You can take control of your circumstances by exercising authority in the spiritual realm. All it takes is the faith. Now, this time I'm not using this word in the meaning of allegiance, but rather in the meaning of knowing something that is unseen. It simply takes faith exercised through command, and it takes a command made in absolute faith. The knowledge that when you speak the words, they will be done. Matthew 8, 8 through 9. And the captain answered and said, Master, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only say a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What the centurion is describing here is authority and power exercised in the sure knowledge of faith. And this little exchange and answer provides a key insight on the practice of exercising authority. Authority is leveraged through spoken word, through command and instruction. As a member of the kingdom of God, you have been granted that same authority. All we have to do is use the authority that's been granted to us as a member of the kingdom of God. And I tell you now, the enemy listens, and the enemy complies when you command them in the name of Yeshua. The authority that we have been given, it's not an illusion or only given to a select few. This authority is so powerful that even people who are not part of the kingdom of God are able to invoke it and use it. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, not everyone who says to me, master, master shall enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but he who is doing the desire of my father in the heavens. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many mighty works in your name? And then I shall declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. He never knew them, and yet they were able to leverage the name and the authority of Yeshua and to bring about new creation in their wake. Why? Was it because of how good or how prepared or how righteous they were? Not at all. It's because the authority of Yeshua is so potent that simply invoking it causes the world to change based on his authority. And we who have the Spirit of God and who are part of the kingdom of God, how much more could we do if we just stepped out in faith and invoked the authority of our King in the world around us? But we don't. Because we are afraid. We are meek. We are lukewarm. We don't dare step out because it might mean that we fail. It might mean that we end up looking stupid. Or we might be faced with an unchanged reality in the face of our declaration. In fact, it's easier not to risk this and to live this half-life 
than it is to put everything on the line and perhaps be faced with a difficult reality or prospect. Besides, do we really have any needs? We have doctors to care for our physical needs. We have all the food we could want. We have racks and racks of affordable clothing on every corner. We have transportation and we can order anything that our heart desires and it will be delivered to our very doorsteps the next day. We are like Laodicea. We are rich. We don't truly need anything, at least not physically, unless we do. And then we can always get it. We are destroyed by our spiritual enemy because we don't believe that we are weak. We have succumbed to the illusion that we are powerful and capable, and we don't understand just how to exercise authority. But authority is ours, his authority, the authority that created planets and split seas, the authority that calmed storms and raised the dead. We have this same authority to use in this world, and for those who overcome, we will have increased measures of his authority in the world to come. The second kingdom benefit that we find in this passage is one that is implied. It's not stated explicitly here, but if we turn back to Luke 10's discussion of the authority that Yeshua granted to those who followed him most closely, we see it stated there a bit more clearly. Luke 10, 19-20 says, See, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and none at all shall hurt you. But do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names have been written in the heavens. Being given authority over all the works of the enemy, that is a benefit that we have when we swear allegiance to the kingdom of God. But we shouldn't rejoice in the fact that we have been granted authority. Authority itself, it's not a goal. Authority is a means. It's a tool. It's a tool to be used for the purpose of the gospel. Rather, instead, we should rejoice that our names have been written in the heavens. This is an idiom that refers to being found in the book of life, which itself is an idiom for being granted eternal life. You see, you don't get to reign in the heavens as Revelation 3 promises without eternal life. So while it's not explicitly stated, this idea is included as a benefit of the kingdom of God. When you enter into his kingdom, you gain eternal life. It's part of the benefits package. But that life that is given is not a life that is found or measured in days or age. It is a life that transcends the very nature of time itself. And as such, regardless of how you are living now, what your body or your mind is doing, or how things might be falling apart on you as you age, even now you have eternal life. All you need to do to experience this eternal life is to leave behind this flesh that is bound by things like space and time. Pass through that boundary that looks a lot like death, and only then can you claim the reward of the eternal. You see, our lives are not our own. The moment you pledge allegiance to Yeshua and his kingdom is the moment that your life lived for you ends. You are no longer your own. In that moment, your old life passes away. You embrace the death of this body and you enter into a state of eternal life. 
There's no longer anything that anyone can do to you that will permanently harm you. If you were to die tomorrow for the sake of the gospel, it's better. Every moment from the moment of your allegiance is his. He becomes the priority in your life. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1, 19-21. says, For I know that this shall turn out for my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, according to my intense longing and anticipation, that I shall not be ashamed at all, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Messiah shall be made great in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. Or this, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Messiah, and I no longer live, but Messiah lives in me. And that which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul describes is the fact that the moment of your salvation is the moment of death for you. The you that you were ceases to exist. The you that your family and friends knew and have grown to know has passed away. And the you that now stands in your flesh is not truly you anymore. Your motivations are different. Your actions are different. Your spirit is different. The way of living your life is different. Because it is no longer you living your life. It's Messiah living his life through you. His mission becomes your mission. His spirit becomes your spirit. His kingdom is your everything from that moment on. The concerns of this world, they'll work themselves out. So ask yourself, are you living your life as Yeshua would if he were facing the same circumstances that you are? What would he change? Where would he bring change? Who would he work to heal? When would he act? Why did he even do what he did? These are the questions that should motivate our lives after salvation. And yes, you may die in the process. Yeshua sure did. But for you, as it was for him, that's all the better. You may live in discomfort. Yeshua sure did. Life in the trenches is not easy. You may be forced to walk away from every trapping of your life. Yeshua sure did. So be it. Because all of those things, all those trappings of your life, they belong to a dead man. The man who owns and possesses is gone. Messiah owns it all now, and it is all to be leveraged for the sake of the kingdom and the mission. This new life is eternal. It's yours. It is now. This is the second benefit of the kingdom of God, eternal life with him. Moving on in the passage, the third benefit of the kingdom is a relationship of fellowship with God. Revelation 3.20 See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I shall come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Think about it. As a citizen of America, do you have any influence with Vladimir Putin? Of course not. You're an American, and Putin is the Russian president. What about Xi Jinping? Can you call on him in any way? Do you have any influence with him or his advisors, or can he change anything about your life? Not at all. 
The president of China has no power or authority over you as a citizen of the United States, at least in concept. In the same way, before we become a part of the kingdom of God, we have no relationship with him. We have no influence with him. We belong to a completely different kingdom, a kingdom of death, a kingdom of this world. We are his enemies simply by being subjects of that other kingdom. Romans 5.10 For if, being enemies, we were restored to favor with God through the death of his Son, so much more having been restored to favor, we shall be saved by his life. Or Philippians 3.17-20 Become joint imitators of me, brothers, and look at those who so walk as you have in us for a pattern. For many of whom I have often told you and now say to you, even weeping, walk as enemies of the cross of Messiah. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their honor is in their shame. They mind the earthly. For our citizenship is in the heavens from which we so eagerly wait for the Savior, the Master, Yeshua the Messiah. We were enemies of God, and he brought us near to him through the death and resurrection of his son. And yet there are those who are still his enemies, those who serve their stomachs, those who seek earthly honor, those whose minds are on the things of this world. But we are citizens of a greater kingdom, of the kingdom in the heavens, and so our concerns, our minds, our priorities should be the things of heaven. So while we were once enemies of God, we have been brought near, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Yeshua and Messiah, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. We once, we were far off. We were part of that different kingdom. We were enemies of God. We were citizens of the kingdom with another leader, another authority in our lives. But through salvation, we have been brought near to God. We have been brought into a relationship with him. When you are part of his kingdom, you are not only under his rule and his authority. He comes and he lives with you. He eats with you. He fellowships with you. He's with you at all times. He's closer than a friend. He's not just a king off in a castle or a white house or a palace somewhere. He is nearby and in relationship with you. You have his ear. You can express your concerns and desires to him. You can confide in him. This benefit of the kingdom is not something to just be glossed over, and it is not a platitude or a cliche. It is a, rela- it is a reality of our allegiance to him. James 4, 8 Draw near to God, and he shall draw near to you. Cleanse hands, sinners, and cleanse the hearts, you double-minded. If you draw near to him by engaging in the difficult task of cleansing away the the dross of this world, he draws near to you. It's a two-way street. He draws near to you. You draw near to him. Or how does James describe this process of drawing near to God? Cleanse your hands. Take action in the physical and cleanse your hearts. Take action in the spiritual, in your mind. You know, Revelation 3 speaks of the same thing. 
As many as I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be ardent and repent. Revelation 3.19 Be ardent, be zealous, be filled with the zeal for God and for his ways and for his kingdom. Repent, cleanse your hands, cleanse your heart. And in this we find the fourth benefit of allegiance that this section of Revelation speaks on. Now this is a benefit that is only implied in this verse. What is the result of repentance? What is it that leads to Yeshua coming and fellowshipping with us? It's forgiveness. This is a benefit that cannot be overstated. This is not just a future event or some insubstantial reality. I believe that if we are able to truly understand the profound depths of forgiveness and then apply it fully to our lives, the church would grow more than it has since its inception. And I don't mean in numbers. I mean in maturity. If we can understand and apply forgiveness to ourselves, we could grow up as a church. What is it that forgiveness means? When we think of forgiveness in terms of religion and salvation, we tend to conceptualize it as some sort of nebulous forgiveness of sins that God directs towards us. He forgives us of our sins. He no longer holds them against us in the cosmic courtroom. So we now have eternal life, and we are no longer subject to the death that ruled over us before. Yes, all of that. Uh, All of that's true. But that's just one side of the forgiveness coin. You see, the fact is that if God has forgiven us of our sins, this means that we can forgive ourselves of our sins. Think on that for a minute. There are a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians or believers or messianic or whatever. People who have been washed in the blood of Yeshua and who have entered into the kingdom of God, but who are being held down by their past, by their shame, the anger, the pain, the trauma. Maybe it's not the things that you have done, but it's things that have been done to you. All of that can be gone when you encounter Yeshua. The past, the dead man is just that. Your past is gone. The good, the bad, the ugly, the terrifying, the shameful, the hurt, the destruction, it is gone. Yes, evil exists. Yes, you have encountered it. Yes, you have created it and participated in it. And yes, you have been hurt by it. But when we understand forgiveness and everything else that I've spoken on today, that pasts can be laid to rest. It doesn't have to have teeth. It doesn't need to hurt anymore. You can let it go. And you can recognize the evil in yourself and the evil in others and recognize the need for a savior. You can acknowledge the evil in others that's been directed towards you and see the truth. Humans are naturally evil. We are agents of death when left to our own devices. But when you declare allegiance to Yeshua, your connection to the kingdom of death is gone. It's over. The death, the evil, they're done with. The pain and emotion need not ever torment you again. That shame and that sorrow, they're his now. And this is one of the greatest powers that we have. 
the power to be made anew. 1 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a new creation. The old matters have passed away. See, all things have become new. If you're struggling with the past and you simply cannot move on from tragedy and pain, this can be released. It can be healed. The hole that exists inside of you can be filled and you can be made anew. This is the truth of the life in the spirit, the life of the overcomer. If this seems beyond you, then contact me. Contact your pastor, your rabbi, a counselor. Read a book. One I can recommend is Forgiving What You Can't Forget by Lisa Tarkierst. But talk to someone about it. Do something about it. Don't just wallow in it. Let it out and you can be free. No one in the kingdom of God should judge you for your past. Instead, you can find freedom release, and redemption. The past can be truly dead. The hurt that you have perpetrated and the hurt that has been perpetrated against you. They can be gone. Truly gone. And you may find that when you let go of the past that's holding you down, that many of the physical issues that you deal with, they may pass away as well. As they should. The old you is gone. These things can go with him. Gone for good. Living for the kingdom, it may seem scary when approached only from the side of responsibility. Making Hashem and his kingdom the priority of your life might seem like asking too much. It's too extreme. It's too difficult. It's too demanding. It's too scary. But what is the alternative? For those who claim allegiance to Hashem, the alternative is a sort of half-life. One foot in this world, following culture, seeking money, seeking comfort or power, seeking everything but the kingdom of God. And what you're left with is a life that is stuck in the past. One foot stuck in the world. Not a man put to death and raised to new life. Not a new creation. Rather a zombie, half alive, half death. A twisted creation, lukewarm in every way. Thorns and weeds choking out all possibility of fruit. The concerns of this world drowning out the seedling of the kingdom that is struggling to get into the light. But that's not the life that we are called to. We are called to a life of allegiance. We're called to put the kingdom on priority. Everything else comes secondary. And as you look at your life, as we spoke of in the last teaching, even if you have just begun to engage in this exercise, you've probably recognized that your lived life experience is not matching your stated priorities. There's a disconnect present in who you say you follow and what your schedule and your budget reflect as your priority. But guess what? It doesn't matter. Even today, even what you have done this morning. When it comes to repentance and forgiveness, it doesn't matter. Even this morning is past. Even a few minutes ago can be forgiven. 
There is no limit. Even today, you can repurpose your life. Your past no longer needs to hold you back. The worries of this world no longer need to bind your mind and make you useless. You can shift your allegiance, even today, from the lesser gods and lesser priorities, and you can pledge your allegiance to Yeshua and let Him take the lead in your life. Or are you so rich that you can't leave behind your riches? Are you so poor that you have to put money first? Are you so afraid of others that the culture can rule you? Are you so honorable and puffed up with pride that you can't acknowledge, let alone repent of hurt? Are you without need? If this is the case, then you might as well quit now. You don't need God. You've got everything figured out. Pack up your things and quit pretending. If the world has such a hold on you that you can't bear to make it second place, then go back to it. It will welcome you back with arms open wide. It will accept you and it will pretend to love you. But in the end, it will take your life from you. Otherwise, allegiance to the kingdom of God should govern your life. Because it is in allegiance to the kingdom of God that freedom is truly found. And it is through allegiance that the benefits of the kingdom are then reaped. The authority of the king in heaven eternal life, fellowship and relationship with God and others, and a clean break from the past. These are the keys to truly living life for God. So Deresh Chai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.